Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Krzysztof Odinitz, and today we're talking with Pekka Hamalainen about his book, The Comanche Empire. Professor Hamalainen is Rhodes Professor at the University of Oxford, specializing in early and 19th century North American history, especially in indigenous, colonial, imperial, borderlands, and environmental history, all topics that invite comparative discussion and a global view. Professor Hamalainen is author also of when diseases make history, when disease makes history, epidemics and great historical turning points, which was published in two thousand and six, and now the Comanche Empire, which was published in two thousand and nine, and won a number of awards, including the Bancroft Prize. So the book is already a few years old, but I think it's certainly a new book in history because the way it views indigenous history and the Comanche Empire is new, and it has changed a lot of the discussion in classrooms and. Uh, historical and historiographic circles uh, all around the world. So I'm very pleased to have Pekka Hamalainen on the podcast today. And would you please, sir, tell us about the Comanche Empire, both the early modern polity and the book itself? Uh, Happy to, happy to. So uh, what would you like to know? Well, I think, uh, how did you come to see this empire that we did not see in the past? And I come to you from a 16th century Spanish empire perspective. So my view you know, and, and certainly as, as an undergraduate and as a, as a secondary school student in my whole life is that here, here the Europeans were carving up the planet and you can see on the map, you know, this is the red area that belongs to Spain and this is the blue area that belongs to France and somewhere in there are indigenous peoples, which you have said, you know, were previously viewed as speed bumps on the way to European domination of the planet, but but not so. It, the story is very different Uh I think maybe you said in a recent talk at Nottingham that it was a um, uh, new indigenous history, or I may have the term incorrectly, but that, that this perspective, this uh, the agency and the, and the point of view of an empire we didn't see because it wasn't written on these jigsaw puzzle European maps, which you call uh, a, a, a fiction Um how did you find it? How did you see it? Well, that's it's, it's yeah. a good question. I mean, I was always like you, you know, very suspicious about these uh, 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 sort of uh, traditional maps with the, these uh, color coded blocks of, of territory and Indians having no space, actually, and no presence in those maps. So I was always, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, troubled by 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 these uh, cartographic tradition, but, you know, really, you know, the Comanche Empire, I, I really found it was kind of a genuine discovery in a way, you know, I was doing a very different project initially, a history of all the Plains Indians, sort of a kind of a ridiculous project in a way, because it it, it included more than 30, 30 Plains Indian tribes. And uh, doing the research, eventually I came to the uh, Comanches and uh, I just realized there was something missing. There was a kind of uh, 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 just a, a sense that uh, there was a gap, some gap in the historiography that they were, they, I, I pretty quickly developed a sense that they were much more powerful uh, than uh, uh, most historians had re- realized. And, uh, and I just, Drop the 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 larger project of of uh, this comprehensive history of all Plains Indians and just uh, uh, focused on 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 Comanches and uh, wrote one article which focused on uh, on trade. That was the blind spot I found in the historiography uh, and published something on it and then kept going and uh, that it became uh, then the. Uh, 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 the Comanche Empire was first my dissertation, and then uh, a couple of years later, it became the book. The book is a pleasure to read on on many levels. And one thing I I, um, uh, I love how you did is you write the narrative, but there's also the footnotes. And so you can read it turning page after page about the story. This happened here, this happened there. And then I wonder, how does he know that? And I would flip 
frequently back and see here's a deposition of one Spanish official or here's a, a report of a, a friar, are the sources you have found chiefly European sources that then you uh, piece together um, and, and find, the, find a narrative that tells you about you know, the Comanche view of trade or Comanche view of raiding and so on? Or were you able to find other kinds of indigenous sources? Or, and then you talk in, in your introduction about the methods of upstreaming, sidestreaming, um, uh, and a stere stereoscopic historiography. Can you describe how you found it and how you found the story you could tell? Yeah, I think in some ways uh, it was really, you know, kind of a shift of, of uh, perspective. Uh, that was the uh, uh, main, main uh, 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 kind of uh, methodological uh, uh, breakthrough I had. So I, I think, you know, most of the sources are actually known. I didn't, I don't think I found maybe a couple of new sources, as mo but most, most of the sources uh, 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 were very well known to historians. But what I did, it was sort of uh, uh, looking things differently. So I think, you know, many traditionally native history sort of uh, looked from uh, colonial frontiers inward, you know, sort of seeing things uh, through uh, the colonist eyes. And I, and in a very simple way, I sort of uh, just uh, did the reverse and I placed myself sort of uh, metaphorically speaking in the, in the center of, of, of uh, Comanche land, Comancheria, and sort of uh, took like a 360 degree view from Comancheria outward and seeing, you know, what does New Mexico, what does Texas, what does, does Louisiana, the French colo uh, uh, colonialism, what, how do they, they fit into this uh, Comanche world and trying to look things from a uh, Comanche point of view. And suddenly, you know, when, you, when I did that, I, I started to see patterns. The first patterns were trade, how Comancheria, this sort of uh, uh, traditionally uh, uh, considered like a, like a, like a, uh, uh, almost a blind spot on a, on a map, you know, this very marginalized region uh, actually uh, suddenly emerged as this commercial hub. And the same happened with warfare, raiding and so uh, and diplomacy and so forth and so forth. So it was really kind of a, a systematic uh, 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 inspection of, of the American West from uh, Comancheria uh, uh, outward. And, and what kind of records did the... I mean, do the Comanches have – the interesting thing is that it doesn't resemble a European polity in that there's no architecture, there's no ruins. I presume there's no archive, right? How, how does it – how do you do it? How do you get there? Yeah, they, they, I mean, the Comanche sources are quite – quite limited. And the Comanches, you know, there, there's a, some anthropologists believe the Comanches were quite reluctant to speak to anthropologists in the late 19th century and early 20th century when the anthropology anthropology and uh, anthropologists uh, tried to make systematic, uh, uh, conduct systematic research in, in, in different reservations. And the Comanches were sort of, they kept their cards pretty close to their chest. So we don't have much anthropological uh, uh, material on Comanches. We have enough, but not huge amounts. And the Comanches don't have really, you know, certain uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, rich, Records like, for instance, the Lakota Sioux have, which is a winter count. Though so those kinds of uh, uh, sources are not available, so it's mostly uh, European sources, like you mentioned in the beginning. You know, uh, just reading the European sources through kind of an ethnographic filter, trying to understand what what's happening. You know, what are the events and uh, key events, and how what, how they how Comanches may have understood them, and uh, what they meant to the meant to the Comanches. Uh, uh, so uh, it's it's really is a kind of a way of uh, reading reading European sources against the grain. Luckily, uh, uh, there were quite a few traders because the Comanches became a, you know you know a very very powerful commercial uh, 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 nation. So uh, there were a lot of a lot of visitors. A lot of uh, uh, Spanish officials, uh, 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 Spanish explorers, American explorers, American traders visiting the Comanches and reporting what they saw in Comanche land and Comanche villages and how the Comanches uh, function as a society and so forth and so forth. So uh, those sources were very, very, you know, helpful for, for me. So luckily we had these kind of uh, uh, 
little bit of inside of you, you know, uh, a view from within. Although always through uh, European eyes. Yes, and I suppose because of, of the the trade is the place to begin. Trade is uh, less political, perhaps, than anything else. Or uh, so. What, one remarkable theme in, in in your in your book is how um, the the Comanche could uh, alternate between trading and raiding, or or, or violence and, and diplomacy, all at the same time, and how. Both of those were were aspects of diplomacy, and how how often the Comanche could play the Spanish against the French or the the other uh, American Indian uh, tribes in 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 the region. Um, so, ha- tell us a bit about the the amazing um, the the amazing world of trade that you discovered. Well. Um- the core of the uh, uh, of the trade is uh, is uh, is uh, horses. So the Comanches became this uh, uh, specialized pastoralist society. You know, we often think of them as as a typical you know hunter gatherers, but they, they were they really became a a sort of a pastoral society, pastoral power. You know, with massive massive. Uh, uh, horse herds, uh, and uh, that was the foundation, uh, sort of the economic foundation of the empire and the economic foundation of the trading uh, system, uh, 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 whose tentacles sort of uh, expanded uh, uh, far to the north, almost to the Canadian uh, border, far to the east towards Louisiana, and far to the west on the uh, towards the Rocky Mountains. So the Comanches had massive, massive. Uh, uh, numbers of horses and surplus horses they could exchange for all the things they needed, which is mostly guns, metal, iron, uh, ammunition, lead, uh, powder, and so forth and so forth. They also traded uh, uh, buffalo ropes, but uh, 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 that wasn't essential uh, in my view as, uh, as, the, as the horse trade because the Comanches had a, uh, there was a sort of ecological fault line uh, because the winters get increasingly harsher uh, from south to north, as, uh, as as can be expected, which meant that the horse racing was much more difficult the further north you got on the Great Plains. So there was a, 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 a horse racing was very very difficult in the north, and the northern plains were kind of a def- deficit region where the Comanches could always where the Comanches could always find. Uh, healthy, steady markets for their horses, and then get, then get uh, in return guns, powder, and uh, uh, other manufactured goods that helped uh, uh, sort of uh, prop up their power and their empire uh, in the southwest. And try as they might, the Europeans who would like to limit Indian access to gunpowder and firearms could not because of this multilateral trade network. So wherever the Spanish tried to keep the Indians from having guns, they would just go get them from the French and, and so on. Absolutely. Yes. And these chains, like I said, you know, like you mentioned, you know, they, they uh, extend all the way back to St. Lawrence Valley and all the way to, to the East Coast. So uh, what about these fairs? Uh, that, that to me reminds me of medieval European history where you go to the, the fair in Champagne or something like that. Here you had the fairs of Pecos and, and uh, Taos. What are these places and uh, what, what was it like to be at, at, at the fair in the American Southwest in the 18th century? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're quite, uh, well, they're, first of all, they're multi-ethnic. So you would have the Spanish, you, you would have uh, uh, Spanish officials, you would have uh, 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 Spanish priests, and you would have Pueblo Indians and uh, maybe Ute Indians from, from the Rocky Mountains. And then you would have the Comanche uh, embassies coming in, in uh, 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 from, the, from the plains and uh, uh, bringing all kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of goods uh, uh, to trade, not only horses, you know, and not only uh, bison ropes, but also slaves, you know, captured elsewhere. So uh, one of the uh, sort of essential threats of these fairs was uh, was these uh, uh, trading captives and, and slaves, uh, which uh, clearly made, obviously made these uh, sort of uh, uh, very, very intensely emotionally charged uh, uh, occasions uh, uh, with hard bargaining, uh, 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 with a uh, uh, lot of uh, emotions and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and sheer human drama. I mean, uh, 
the, the I mean, these trade centers were where the sort of the nerve centers of the of the colonial and indigenous uh, economies, uh, and absolutely essential to both. N- neither the, the colonists nor the Comanches could have. Uh, Really survive as political entities without without these tra- uh, affairs. Uh, so the fairs sort of pull these uh, uh, two very different societies together, but they also separate them in in many fundamental ways. Uh, uh, because uh, when you have things like slavery and captive captive trade. Uh, these are complicated issues, obviously. So uh, uh, there was uh, always, you know, many, many, you know, sort of uh, 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 kind of uh, conflicting interests because these are such, you know, multi-ethnic uh, affairs. And often, you know, the the main challenge was to avoid violence uh, in these uh, in these uh, emotionally charged uh, affairs. That's a such a remarkable. I would say very surprising uh, revelation that I found in in this book was the use of captives and slaves as part of the political and diplomatic game. And it also mm-hmm. seems very different to me than the way I previously considered slavery in the 18th century, which was this European plantation chattel slavery around, you know, the, the production of, of um, sugar or coffee or tobacco and so on. But here, this is the slavery of, of raiding and exchange of captives. And one shocking detail that you add from this horrified priest, Fray Pedro Serrano, was the custom of Comanche to publicly rape the women they brought to mm-hmm. market before selling them. And it's, I mean, we have this account through the eyes of a Spanish priest. So obviously, we, it's hard to guess what this, what is going on. Is it, um, is it, oh, you suggest that this act was to horrify the Europeans and to make them, uh, maybe to cow them or to negotiate for their captives before this could happen to the women or what, uh, I guess that question is twofold. One, what do you think is going on? And two, how do you understand slavery uh, in, in the Southwest, which is so different than Atlantic slavery? Yeah, no, I think, you know, the, I mean, the, the, that source you mentioned, the, the public rape, you know, I, I did, I, I agonized actually whether to include it in the book because it, it is such a, a, a striking source and and, and 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 a disturbing source. And but then you know I decided to try to understand what's behind it. And I think it's it's precisely what you what you said. The Comanches are uh, it, to me it seems they are uh, uh, through the abuse trying to get, sort of create a moral obligation. Uh, uh, for the for the Spanish to 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 buy these uh, uh, slaves, and it's kind of a warning, you know. If you don't, this is how it's going to be for these uh, for these women. So uh, so you have to buy them. That's it's your moral moral uh, responsibility to uh, uh, to purchase them now. And uh, I mean that's the, that 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 is my interpretation. It's it's, it's a, it, it in some ways it's a, it's a guesstimate, but. Uh, 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 it's difficult to think of uh, another reason, really, and uh, and slavery. So it's it's a, it's a really interesting slave uh, uh, slave system or captivity system because it really is uh, is uh, uh, it's not chattel slavery and uh, and uh, it's kind of a, a slavery where captivity shades into kinship. Uh, uh, very smoothly, so uh, uh, many of the captives lived in the in the in the Comanche households, and uh, and many of the captives, especially young boys, uh, were adopted into Comanche va- uh, families uh, as as a fully fledged uh, members of the community. And there was the you know, as far as we know, there was no stigma uh, of uh, uh, of of being a former slave and now a kind of a naturalized Comanche. You know, if you if one behaved like like Comanche, one was accepted uh, as Comanche, fully-fledged Comanche. It was more about not ethnicity and not the racial background or anything like that, but behavior and understanding the culture. If you can behave like a Comanche, if you can speak like a Comanche, you can be Comanche. Is that true for everyone, including uh, Spanish captives, uh, French captives? Absolutely, I, I I think so. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, so yes, yeah, yeah. There's no. I, I think there's a really, you know, limited kind of uh, ethnic consciousness in a, in a way. Behavior is everything. 
That's I, I was just it, it makes me think of uh, Little Big Man, the movie with Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman, where he is adopted. I always thought that was just a, fan, a fantasy, you know, a Hollywood fantasy, but not so. Yeah. Yeah. That movie was ahead of its time. Definitely. One of yeah. my favorite movies. You know, I think that it's one the movie that got me interested initially in, in Native history. I'm glad you mentioned it. No kidding. It. Uh, so, uh, could you say what is henisaro? Uh, uh, the this this term that you use for the is that is that the same thing? The this um, this slavery that becomes uh, that that slides into kinship or an yes. adoption, or is that something else? Yeah, no, that's that's uh, uh, you know sort of. Uh, uh, these Henisaro villages, they are mixed villages on, on, on New Mexico's eastern border and Comancheria's western border. And these are, uh, these are freed captives or freed slaves uh, who are kind of, uh, you know, ethnically ambiguous uh, 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 group, you know, uh, not entirely Spanish, not entirely Comanche, but something in between and as such very useful for both uh, these powerful, you know, power brokers of the region, which is the Spanish colonists and the and the Comanche nation or the Comanche Empire. Yeah, so uh, their villages become sort of a conduit between the two two societies, the Spanish and the Comanches, uh, and uh, allowing them to the Comanches and Spanish to to meet in their villages and uh, and conduct trade and diplomacy and so forth and so forth. I, I think it's a very typical borderland uh, uh, borderland uh, phenomenon actually in North America where you don't really have hard, clearly defined borders until uh, well into the uh, late 19th century in most cases. Um, and the European uh, sources that, that we see in, in your footnotes, some of them, are, you know, as, as I guess we would expect are in a strangers in a strange world and see aliens and, and barbaros. And some of them become quite sophisticated. And uh, I'm a Spanish historian mm-hmm. myself. And so my favorite character, or I should say historical figure is this, um, uh, governor who is, um, Oh, it just escaped me. It's, I think it's, uh, uh, Velez Cap- Cap- uh, who, who sort of yes. untangles what the, the language of gift giving and, and, uh, understands the, how politics is personal and not institutional in a very interesting way. Uh, and his knowledge doesn't necessarily survive his tenure because the next fellow who comes along makes the same mistakes that the mm-hmm. previous fellow who, who came along. And uh, it's just uh, a, a, re- a remarkable figure. And uh, can, can you say a bit about the uh, ethnographic progress that the, you know, the early modern Spaniard who suddenly found himself in this very new place was able to yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting point, you know, because we'll be sort of after Richard White's Middle Ground uh, and, and many other books, you know, where the, the French colonists have sort of become the, uh, the embodiment of the, of the, well, perhaps broad-minded uh, colonists who understand, uh, who understood the, uh, the native mindset and were able to, able to forge functioning relations with the with the native people and uh, and sort of try to understand their worldview and although it, as, as Richard White says you know usually you know more through uh, uh, creative misunderstandings than than rather than uh, sort of uh, uh, understanding perfectly each other but you know uh, I think you know the the same sort of dynamic happens is Precisely, as you like, with Kachupin in in the in the American Southwest with the Spanish and the Comanches, you know they they try to understand one another to a, to a degree they do and they make it work, but there's also you know a lot of that a uh, uh, lot of misunderstandings and 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 sort of a blind spots uh, spots uh, which can be very useful uh, uh, in a way because it allows these uh, uh, kind of. Uh, it's almost a safety valve uh, uh, in a in a in a relationship that that is very 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 intense. So the mutual misunderstandings uh, allow uh, a kind of uh, coexistence in a very sort of surprising, paradoxical way. It's it's better not to you know if if the two sides had understood each other perfectly, the coexistence might have been much more difficult. Misunderstanding and you know partial understanding may be quite quite helpful. Say 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 more about that. That's a big surprise. That uh, the, uh, what does it do? It allows space to go to retreat and come back a second time and try again. Or 
that that you maybe you don't take it as personally because you're dealing with aliens and barbarians anyway and so it's, it's yeah i think it's, yeah i think it's it's, it's sort of uh, you can uh, when when uh, the other person doesn't really understand you uh, 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 i think there's um mm, uh, in that gap, in that sort of a space of misunderstanding, uh, you can uh, hold on to your core beliefs and uh, sort of uh, believe that the other person understand understands them even when they don't. It's kind of this sort of a mutual dance that, you know, they are trying to pretend to understand and you don't. And uh, like I said, you know, if if the Spanish and the Comanches had really, really understood each other perfectly, I think it would have been more difficult for them to to coexist. You know, it it allows, you know, the misunderstandings allow the kind of the fiction that uh, uh, the world works as 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 we want. Uh, and both sides can sort of maintain the fiction uh, 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 that that they are in charge and the world functions as 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 they as they want. Although uh, much of the uh, uh, kind of a negotiation and and supposed understanding are actually you know fictional and misunderstandings. That's the best I can do. Yeah, though that's that I that's really interesting and something to mm. think about. I think there's um. Not examples here, for example, the desecration of, uh, for example, in one Comanche raid, you tell us how uh, the statue of St. Francis was toppled mm. and beheaded. And so we see a lot of just um, violence that the Europeans would interpret as, yeah. you know, cruelty and barbarism, the scalping and gouging of eyes, or we said earlier, the abuse of women, but then also to destroy the holy symbols. Mm-hmm. That that's that's a sophisticated message. Like we're not only going to kill the priests, we will also cut off the heads of the of the likeness of Saint Francis or something like that. Uh, I wonder. So I'll ask you a comparative question. And uh, uh, is this a bit like the the Vikings of the 10th century, who you know they they're not only they're swooping in to catch. Uh, uh, slaves and tr- golden treasure and so on, but they also know that they're supposed to destroy the monastery, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 so on. Is, is it feels more medieval, and maybe I, I feel that way because of the fairs, and maybe I'm putting too much of what I know onto something I don't know. Uh, but um, it's it's that there is that negotiation through these this language mm-hmm. of violence that then allows. Um, you know, projecting my understanding of what this alien group is onto them, and they can do the same to me. And uh, is it, that might be what you are just describing, which is yeah, yeah. I think you know, I mean, trade is a typical example of, of this uh, because uh, 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 the Spanish believe that trade should be governed by uh, by by markets. You know, uh, uh, the dynamics of uh, supply and and demand and prices. And Comanches believe that trade is sharing, and uh, to share you have to uh, have a proper relationship, which is uh, 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 your relatives, your uh, your relatives who share wealth uh, with one another. So it's it's uh, two diametrically different I- ideas uh, uh, about trade, and uh, yet the Spanish and the Comanches trade extensively over a century or so, or nearly a century or so, and that th- there in that situation, that 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 long-standing trading relationship is uh, it, it hinges on misunderstandings because they don't quite understand each other's meanings. So both are able to believe the Spanish are able to believe that you know it is markets actually that that run this system and it's it's sort of a, just a neutral exchange that the Comanches are able to be as long as the goods change hand they are able to believe frame the trade in terms of kinship people becoming relatives who share wealth with uh, with one another so uh, uh, that's uh, that's a one way to to look at it it's interesting you mentioned Vikings you know because when I was trying to understand the Comanche Empire and it's sort of a geopolitical uh, dimensions and the, how the Comanches, how on earth they were able to command so much space. You know, I did read a lot of lot of about uh, the Vikings and the and the uh, how the Vikings uh, 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 sort of uh, like the Comanches were punching way above their demographic weight. Uh, and then you get this uh, this figure. Uh, if I may return to uh, Velez 
Kachupin again, he who understood that um, this is how these people understand trade, and this is how our people understand trade. And so, if we make an agreement and put it on paper, it's going to be dead. But if we have to sit mm-hmm. periodically and sit again, and every next time we see them sit down again and and smoke together, and and uh, so he, he he was able to do that, and. I, uh, he was one example of a of a European who saw the Comanche as a nation, right? G- give it that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And he's performing, right? You know, uh, he's performing this role. The the Comanches expected him to play, and he he did it beautifully. So uh, tell us, okay. So that's the 18th century. Tell us what happens in the 19th century. How does that the, along well, comes the, the United States? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean it's 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 interesting the uh, because the Comanche Empire, in my view, it really actually peaks in the early nineteenth century, uh, uh, rather than starting to decline. I think the Comanches are, are at the height of their power in the eighteen thirties and forties, and that's largely because the Americans have now entered the picture. They are trading with the Comanches. They are coming, uh, uh, pushing westward, but but not as really as soldiers, but rather as uh, as traders. And uh, these people are wealthy, you know, uh, uh, and they have uh, technologies that uh, the Spanish could never provide to the Comanches. They have uh, 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 their su- supply lines are superior, so they can inject a lot of lot of wealth and technology into into commentary allowing the Comanches to become ever ever uh, increasingly powerful in the in the early 19th century which is a really interesting dynamic we have this uh, you know american sort of behemoth expanding american empire expanding westward and the Comanches becoming increasingly powerful yet they don't really clash until uh, 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 late uh, uh, late 19th century. So there's uh, uh, this really kind of a, almost mysterious uh, coexistence between the two expanding powers. What one interesting development is the uh, American Mexican War that you also refer to. And mm-hmm. When you study this from a Spanish point of view, uh, it's uh, or I should say a, a, a Spanish and Mexican point of view. It's um, I mean it's obviously a a war of aggression and and um, snatching of territory because you know because Polk wanted to and because of manifest destiny mm-hmm. and be, frankly because the Americans could with very little cost, but also one thing that uh, sometimes avoids the um, the historical narrative which I didn't discover until I was teaching this myself in a Mexican uh, American history course is that very very few people lived up there who were uh, Mexicans or 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 Spanish. Um, uh, uh, people of Spanish uh, ancestry who then became settlers of the new world. And so we, one thing I often tell my students is that, yes, this was about 50% of Mexican territory was taken in 1848, but only 1% of the Mexican population lived there. Having read your book, yeah. I wonder if that's not true, that there's tons of people there. They just don't happen to be counted by, by Mexican census takers. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it's densely populated. It's just these, these are, um, they're, the whole story is the Comanche Empire and not this, you know, this geographic fiction, this amazing expanse of land that, that, that changed hands at the, at the stroke of a pen, but obviously on the ground that nobody noticed for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm sure you know a lot. A lot of uh, uh, people went uh, unaccounted for. Uh, uh, that's that's quite quite pof- possible, uh, uh, because you know, especially in the uh, 1830s and 40s, the Comanches and uh, also the Kiowas and Apaches, they are all over the map, and uh, to a large extent, it's these uh, three you know indigenous powers that really dominate the landscape, not year round but seasonally, coming in you know every summer. Uh, uh, late spring every summer and raiding, you know, for several months across the, you know, uh, uh, multiple uh, Mexican departments. So, uh, I mean, these are these are sort of uh, uh, exploited hinterlands or hinterlands of exploitation, systematic exploitation, where the state, the Mexican state, has very little presence, very little knowledge, and. Uh, 
I, I, I would assume, you know, uh, wasn't able to sort of really use the, uh, 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 its uh, uh, typical administrative uh, tools, which include obviously counting and, and reporting and, how, uh, and, and knowledge of, of what's going on. Uh, even, you know, just population numbers, they have been really hard to, 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 to uh, uh, collect. Yes, and I think you're constrained by that limitation of imperial administration and much of the reporting you do about population is you're careful to say here's our estimate and here's what we think and perhaps mm-hmm. uh, in 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 the boom times the population tripled from 10,000 to 30,000 and then there was a smallpox epidemic which once which you know knocked it back by half again and and mm-hmm. um, so it's it, it seems to be very closely connected to uh, politics but also the land and also uh, um, epidemics uh, but again, are, are we just guessing? Or how 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 can you? How did you make these guesses? How did you? You mean Comanche populations? Yes, Comanche populations, yes. Or, or perhaps all populations. But well, you know, I, the Mexican population. I, I didn't do any. Uh, uh, I didn't do much on, on on Mexican population. But the Comanches, there's the multiple. You know, the thing about is that the uh, both the Spanish and the uh, uh, the Mexican uh, uh, administrators they. They wanted information, and uh, they wanted to count. They they absolutely needed to know how many natives there were, you know, especially Comanches. And there are quite a few censuses, and uh, 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 and you just have to sort of uh, compare them, you know, uh, across one another. So I came to the figure about uh, the up to forty thousand Comanches at their peak in the late nine, uh, late eighteenth century, which is uh, about. Twice what other historians have uh, have uh, uh, estimated. Maybe it's controversial, but uh, that's uh, those are the figures. Uh, you know, uh, I I I was satisfied, uh, and uh, uh, there's not a whole lot, but I, I I felt there was enough. There's enough to to come up with the figure, which yeah. makes the Comanches, you know, uh, uh, one of the largest tribes uh, or uh, indigenous nations uh, uh, of the time. Yes, and then also governs their uh, political expansion because when you have all these young people mm-hmm. and, and young warriors who are too little to be in the last war and they get to be of age and they want yeah. to demonstrate their, their strength and prowess and make a name for themselves, then it's time to go fight. Yeah, and that, that is the uh, sort of uh, one of the, the kind of the social fuel of, uh, of Comanche Empire, these young men needing to prove themselves as uh, not only as warriors, but also as providers and husbands. Uh, 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 so there's a really interesting kind of uh, social dynamic rather than strategic dynamic behind behind the Comanche expansion, especially into northern Mexico, where the uh, uh, the potential of, of, uh, uh, of wealth, uh, securing wealth was uh, was the greatest. So uh, another consequence that I, I found um, remarkable here is, uh, and something I you know anyone who studies early modern Spain thinks about is the proselytization and Christianization of new peoples in the new world. Uh, one thing I, I learned from your book is that the, some of the Indians who became Christians were doing it to seek allies in the Spanish. For example, first the Apache and then and then the Lipan, if I'm saying mm-hmm. that correctly. They, they weren't persuaded by some friar with a beautiful picture of the of the virgin or the gospel. They said, like, we, we are really being pushed out of our lands by mm-hmm. these fearsome Comanche. We need friends with guns. Let's convert to their religion and see how that works for us, which yeah. is interesting, too, because simultaneously the Spanish are coming up the Californian coast in the, in the 1760s and, and, and 70s and trying to proselytize to Indians uh, in, in, in California and not having much luck. And that, that's the story of the, of the missions here. But again, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's much more political and uh, interesting than, than one would get if you just read Spanish friars. Isn't it? Uh, yes. And again, we, you know, we come back to performing uh, performance. I, I, I think the Apaches know exactly, you know, which, uh, 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 how to, what, to, what to tell the Spanish uh, to get their support. And uh, in, in, in many ways, I think they're manipulating the, the, the Spanish uh, priests and uh, Spanish officials, telling them exactly what they think they want to hear to get their support. And uh, sort of appealing to their their sensibilities and their ambitious uh, ambitions and 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 needs 
to secure uh, uh, protection. It's a, uh, that sort of a bef- uh, perform- performance is, is, is really interesting in, in this world. Yeah, uh, uh, I think, found. yeah. And I don't mean to imply that I think this is somehow unique to Indians because mm. I'm thinking of the Anders Windroth, uh, Windroth book about the Vikings who were Christianizing to make allies with the French. Or I'm thinking about the Archduke of Lithuania who mm. p- becomes a Catholic so he can marry the Queen of Poland so that he can fight the you know the Teutonic Crusaders and so on. So I think this is this is not unusual. It's I, I mean maybe it is unusual, but it's so interesting because it's a it's a it's another comparative element to what's happening in this in this uh, new world space that, um, that 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 you brought to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's actually you know probably you know one of the one of the few sort of universal trends you can find almost el- everywhere you, where you have these different societies, indigenous, native, uh, colonial, imperial, in the same space. Okay, so you said um, that the though the United States is expanding with the Louisiana Purchase and uh, the, the the idea of manifest destiny, they really come up against the Comanche in the, at the, toward the end of the 19th century. And so this is a time when uh, Me- Mexican land has fallen to the United States and the railroad is coming across and what happens? How, how does how do we get from this Comanche Empire, this this Great Plains uh, pol- uh, arrangement of polities, to what we know at the end of the nineteenth century, which is you know a, a, a t- the, the the American Empire and the power of this industrial. Uh, Republic that, stre- that stretches from uh, sea to shining sea. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you uh, uh, put it perfectly. You know, uh, we think that the United States happened to the Comanches, but and it did. But that's not the sequence. You know, what happened to the Comanches was drought uh, in the in the you know severe tra- uh, drought in the in the early uh, uh, in the eighteen forties, and the. Uh, and it, just pro- uh, it was a prolonged drought, in very intense drought, and the buffalo uh, populations collapsed, causing a, a massive uh, a widespread starvation among the Comanches. And at the same time, we had the Indian removal from the east uh, uh, to the Indian territory, and uh, new diseases were spreading uh, with the uh, westward movement of uh, all kinds of people, in na- natives, uh, American traders, and so forth and so forth, and Comanches, uh, you know, being in a in a, in a starving condition, uh, uh, could not resist. Uh, they they became a sort of soft targets for for smallpox and and, and other crowd diseases, and the co- population just utterly collapses in a in a. In a generation, actually, in a, in a, in a few years, you know, it, it seems uh, it, uh, uh, they go from about 20, uh, 20, 20 30,000 to, to uh, uh, fewer than 10,000 uh, in, in, a, in a very short time. So with that, the, uh, you know, the Comanche power just collapses. And after that, the Comanches are sort of uh, uh, become, uh, 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 they have to, Sort of a turn, turn inward, and uh, and just trying to uh, uh, cope. Which is at the same time that that whole way of living and fighting is taken from them because of white settlers and farmers and railroads and uh, destruction of the bison mm-hmm. for for all these reasons. Is that uh, that simultaneous? Yeah, that and, comes uh, a little bit later. There's uh, be a, you know, civil war actually allows the Comanches to kind of stage a bit of a comeback when the it, it looks really bad in the in the uh, in the late 1840s and in the in the 50s. But then the civil war erupts and uh, and uh, the Comanches uh, uh, make a bit of a recovery. You know, the population. Sort of bounces back a little, and suddenly, you know, again they had retreated really into the core of the of their land, you know, in a, in a, along the Arkansas River, um, but then they explode out again, and they are raiding all over the place in uh, New Mexico and especially in Texas, where the where the uh, cattle industry had uh, had got uh, gotten off the ground. So uh, it's it's a very dramatic uh, uh, comeback, but. Uh, uh, it doesn't last. And is, does that come to what is sort of those post-Civil War uh, 
Indian Wars of the U.S. Cavalry that that we know from yeah, cavalry. They movies. blend into those. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, after Civil War, you know, uh, United States has no patience with this kind of a raiding regime in its, uh, uh, you know, in the core of its uh, its uh, territory. So uh, the United States just sort of implements this uh, systematic sustained uh, 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 campaign of total war where they target not only Comanches but also their horses and the buffalo and uh, and uh, really trying to uh, sort of uh, wipe out the economic foundation of the Comanche nation and the Comanche empire and they do it swiftly uh, uh, with the help of the railroad and repeating rifles so uh, uh, it's it's a the final war is uh, is essentially uh, uh, an economic uh, 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 an act of eco- economic warfare, and this is a part of the history that we know from just from uh, just from courses and from movies, and so this is this comes right back to the narrative that that that, that uh, I'm familiar with. Uh, what is amazing is how little we know about the previous two centuries to that. And uh, just from the arrival mm-hmm. of the horse in the plains, which I think you put in the seven, 17th century, I want to say. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It does in the yeah, 17th century, absolutely, yeah. yeah. To, and uh, the, the fact that these people came out of the Rockies and made for 200 years or near, or near that mm-hmm. amount such a powerful and dynamic empire that until you wrote this, I think, uh, at least as far as I can tell, being not a specialist, uh, what was was missing was was entirely missing for the and you know two hundred years is a long time. It uh, there's a lot of empires that came well, away in that, that amount of time. Absolutely, and you know I'm I'm just finishing now an, um, a, a, a new book which is about the Lakota Sioux, another you know a formidable indigenous power, not unlike the Comanches. You know I, I make the case of uh, for a Lakota empire as well in the northern plains. And uh, but the same thing, and you know they are the most famous, uh, uh, arguably, of of the uh, native nations. But we only know really, sort of, uh, uh, from Lewis and Clark uh, uh, till Little Bighorn, you know, the the nineteenth century story. And with the Lakotas, again, I go back to uh, two two and a half centuries, which, because you know that story is really, you know, I mean, we have you know many wonderful specialist studies. But it hasn't really entered the American uh, consciousness. It's just kind of, a, you know, sort of a forgotten history, you know. And like you said, you know, it's a long history and extremely interesting and dynamic and dramatic history of more than two centuries, which is uh, uh, which, of which we know very little about. How would the Kadu the Lakota Sioux compare to the Comanche in in power and size and uh, um, t- uh, strategy and so on? Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, you know, the, I think they are in, in some ways very similar, uh, very similar. Um, but the main axis with Lakotas is from east to west. So they are kind of paralleling the U.S. expansion uh, to some extent. And uh, the geography, is, it's, it's much more complicated. They are engaging with m- multiple uh, uh, colonial powers because you have the French, you have the Spanish in the south, you have the Americans, you have the British, you have multiple wars they are involved in. But the Comanche case was sort of more clear-cut in a way. You had the Spanish and then the Mexican colonies to the south, which were, you know, sort of a soft targets. And then you, the Comanche straight to the north and east. And it was kind of a two-phase two-faced uh, uh, system, very, in a way, you know, very simple system, if, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you will. And the, in some ways, the Lakota story is, uh, is, uh, is uh, uh, more complicated and, uh, uh, and also involves, you know, much, much larger uh, cast of uh, protagonists. Well, that's wonderful. And what is that book uh, going to be called and when is it coming out? Uh, it's coming out in the spring of 19. So uh, as of now, the title is Iktomi's People, the Lakota Age in America. And Iktomi uh, is the cultural hero of the Lakota, Lakota Indians. It's a sort of a shape-shifting spider uh, uh, character. And uh, one of the key themes of the, of the book is the, is the kind of a shape-shifting ability of the Lakota people, which really allows them to be a dominant power in the American interior for over two centuries, almost three centuries, because they're so adaptable and so, 
you know, uh, wonderfully capable of adjusting to different governing conditions, uh, shifting, shifting shape, uh, politically, socially, culturally, mentally. You have it. You name that it. You. That would be great. Perhaps we could do this again in a year when uh, when we were all read Iktomi's people. Very happy. Uh, so to. let me let me ask you uh, this: this book is quite influential for for uh, history faculties at universities. How has it been received among uh, American Indians? And are you know what what is the Comanche uh, uh, state? What is the state of the Comanche people in 2018? And uh, how, how has your work been received or, or has it been received or what, what do you know about yeah, it? No, I've, I've uh, met with quite a few Comanches and, uh, and uh, Comanche people and, uh, and you know, you, one is always nervous, you know, you don't, you don't really know, you know, what people, uh, how, 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 uh, how the objects of your study react to the book. But they, uh, my understanding is, uh, is it's, it's, it's one of the key textbooks in the, in the uh, Comanche uh, Tribal College. And they, 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 they appreciate the book, uh, 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 is my understanding. And, and they are quite happy with it. Uh, because it really, you know, uh, uh, what I've heard, you know, what they appreciate it is, is a, it's an honest uh, uh, kind of a take on, a take on things, you know, uh, uh, genuine attempt to try to understand how this society works, but also sort of restoring the uh, the agency and uh, of the of of native people, of the Comanche people, by showing, you know on what scale, you know, on this massive scale, they could sort of uh, command the world and, uh, and shape history over, over such a long time. So uh, that kind of uh, restoring the indigenous agency and indigenous capacity to, to, to survive and, and shape things was, uh, I think, uh, uh, quite appreciated or quite welcome. I think uh, we live in a time when, when we talk about uh, where we still have these group identities and we think about our nations and, you know, I, I'm, I'm an uh, immigrant to the United States from Poland. So I'm pretty aware of a golden age in the Polish history um, say in the 16th century. And I imagine every, you know, every, every little uh, Indian boy and girl would like to hear about the golden age of their people. And it was so for, for every other group and, uh, that's uh, that's part of I think the the storytelling we tell, even though we live in this multi ethnic, mm-hmm. multinational yes. Uh, yes. world, uh, yeah, of the globe, the global West, and, and so on. So I, yeah, it's because uh, sort of an anchor anchor into the into your past, uh, and uh, yeah. uh, 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 and you know, as such, becomes a central part of your 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 modern identity. Exactly. Yeah, uh, it certainly helps the conversation, and I Absolutely. I personally greatly enjoy the comparative uh, aspects, which, you know, sometimes we can get carried away with, I think, as historians, because mm-hmm. we, we like to see what we see. But um, what, what is it that I have not asked you today that we should, we should talk about that I would, is there any other important? I, I don't know. I mean, this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, exactly the arc I expected. So it, it's been just wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pekka Hamalainen. It is a great pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And I enjoyed your book so much. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the next one, uh, uh, Iktomi's People in the spring of 2019. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it was a pleasure.